Okay, so I'm just going to start with the notes here and then I'm going to break off a little bit. Uh, no matter what you or I are struggling with, so I talked about this last week, there are internal and external struggles that we're all subject to. Some of the internal struggles is the, the realization of sin, right? We all, we all have an abiding, um, abiding sense of our sin and how difficult it is to overcome it. Apathy, doubt, confusion, despair, depression. Uh, just because we're a believer, it doesn't mean that we're not subject to the whole, you know, to the whole spectrum of those things. But we can make make an approach to God uh, through Jesus Christ. It says in uh, it's in the book of Philippians. Uh, to be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication, make our requests known to God. And if we do that, the God of peace will be with us. So we have that access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Then there are external struggles, whether it be having to deal with the external consequences of sin. Sometimes we do things that bring lasting external consequences, so we have to deal with it or of health issues. I've become very familiar with that over the last year. Or issues that plague us in the world. Again, we can make our approach to God the Father through Christ. God the Father will always accept us, want to hear our cries for help, most, most especially when this world and our sin break us. And that's because Jesus is our high priest. And so uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so just to summarize, you know, last week we, there was the contrast between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood. Uh, the, the Levitical priesthood was restricted, was restricted to Jews or Gentiles who convert who would convert to Judaism, Gentiles were other, aside from that completely shut out from the priesthood, and uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek was a higher priesthood. It, it's always so you have the along the line you had right from Adam to Christ you have the Melchizedekian priesthood flowing right from from God, from from <coughs> Eden to Christ. And then now from Christ, it's eternal, so it's an eternal priesthood, right? And then along the way here, you had the Levitical priesthood, and that Levitical priesthood, I believe, was there to teach us something about the Melchizedekian priesthood. And so the priesthood of Melchizedek uh, was much better in that it, it was not only applicable to Jews, but it was also applicable to Gentiles, right? So... Melchizedek, the Melchizedek of Genesis chapter 14, I believe it is, and, and I absolutely believe it was Shem, uh, was before, right? So it was before Abraham and the call and all of those things. So there was a priesthood functional prior to the Jews even being a nation, okay? And so Shem, we know, is, is one of the sons of Noah, okay? All right, so... So we have that better priesthood. Now, the better priesthood is, is contrasted today with the, the covenants. So now the covenants are, 
So as you have a, you had the, you had a, a lesser covenant and a lesser priesthood, but we have a higher priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek and a higher covenant. Okay, so that's kind of where we are in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. So I want to start there, and then we're going to jump around a little bit into the Old Testament because there are some things here I'd like to, I'd like for you to see that I think really, uh, really help us to understand the second half of this chapter. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both sacrifices, I'm sorry, gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Okay, so there, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the Levitical priesthood is talked about, that a priest had to come and they had to, they had to sacrifice first for their own sins before they could sacrifice for the sins of the people and they were to sacrifice in a specific way. Now we've been mentioning all along that Jesus as a priest under the Levitical priesthood could not be a priest because he was of the tribe of Judah, right? Priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. Okay, so that's what it's talking about. So it's, it's now it's gonna move into a contrast between uh, what it calls the covenant that was not faultless and the perfect covenant, okay. For if he, again, picking it up at verse 4, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, the Levitical priesthood, and there were specific sacrifices that had to be made. They had to be made at specific times and specific ways following a specific procedure. Okay. Now, it says that this priesthood and these gifts, verse 5, serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay, so uh, so I think most of us here have seen some sort of mock-up or some sort of picture of what the tabernacle looked like, right? And the, and the different coverings, you know, on the, uh, uh, on the tabernacle. So, so actually, that was a pattern that was shown to Moses. So Moses saw the, he was given a, he was given a, a, a view of the heavenly tabernacle and was told to make a copy of it in the material realm. So it was just a, a shadow and a copy. So, so the best way to, to kind of picture the difference between the earthly tabernacle, now the earthly tabernacle was really, when you start thinking about you know, coverings of porpoise skin. You know, one of the coverings of the tabernacle was porpoise skin and, you know, fine gold and all of that. And it says there that that tabernacle was a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. So, you know, if you go out into the sunlight during the day, you know, you can look down in the, and you can see your shadow. And that's a shadow of you, but that's not you. You are, there's so much more finer detail to you than the shadow. Okay. 
but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch, this is verse 6, as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Okay, so why was a better covenant necessary? First of all, it was always part of God's plan, right? So, so but following this line of thinking, why was a better covenant necessary? Well, look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Okay, so put, a, put your finger right there or a bookmark and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's 68 verses, right? 14 verses are blessings for obedience, and 54, ver 54 verses are curses for disobedience, right? So, so that was what was being proposed to them. If you will do these things, if you agree to be bound by this covenant, these blessings will flow to you, and they're listed in the first 14 verses. But from verse 15 to 54, there are curses that said, if you don't keep the terms of this covenant, these are the curses that I will visit upon you. Okay. So if you jump over to verse 29, I'm sorry, chapter 29 in Deuteronomy, let's read there for a bit. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders, now look at this, verse 4. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. That's interesting. Okay, this is crucial because it speaks to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8 verse, uh, whatever verse it was, that says that that first covenant was not a faultless covenant. It has direct bearing on what's going on here. Verse 5, And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Shion, king of Hezbon, and Ah, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it to, as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, into the half-tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into a covenant with the Lord your God 
and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today, before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. Okay, so this covenant was made, was entered into. First of all, it tells us right off, right off, right at verse one, that this was a covenant with the nation of Israel. So this was a national covenant that was being made. And if they said yes to the covenant, they were saying yes not only on their behalf, but they were saying yes on behalf of their families, all of them who are alive today, and everyone who would come after them of that nation. And the requirement was that they were to perfectly fulfill the covenant. Any infraction by one individual subject, subjected the whole nation to the to the curses under the covenant, right? So 54 verses of curses. Any infraction by any individual would subject the whole nation and would bring about the curses that are listed there. Okay, so we know that that's what happened, right? But here's the question. So why then, because we read in that chapter that God had not given them a heart to understand and eyes to perceive all of the great things that God was doing on their behalf. So, you know, Jesus would refer to this in the New Testament in a way when he was talking about his parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? So, so the fault of that covenant was that it did not enable them to live up to the standard of the covenant. It didn't empower them to do it. So as a result, they came under the curses of the covenant. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, all right. Put a bookmark there because we're gonna come back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 in just a minute. Now jump back to Hebrews chapter eight. Now read at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Okay, now stop right there. Put your finger there and go now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Everybody there? Excuse me? In Hebrews chapter eight, yes. Well, actually, I'll get there in a minute. It's actually that that's actually stated in Isaiah too somewhere, I think, and in Ezekiel. Okay, so now in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, now the, all this now this comes on the heels of 
the, the terms of the covenant that was, that was laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Okay, so it's a continuation of the same, of the same dialogue. Now look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curses which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So it's already, it's going to happen. It's already been foretold to happen. That they would sign the covenant, they would agree to the covenant, that they would bind themselves, their families, and all those who would come after them to that covenant to fully and perfectly keep the 613 laws. Even one violation, now everybody comes under the curses. 54 verses of curses. But, but look there, it's already, you're going to break it. Because it was, a, it was a faulted covenant in that it did not empower them to keep the terms of the covenant. Do you understand what I mean by that? It didn't empower them to keep the terms of the covenant? Because what would be required to keep the terms of the covenant? Well, in essence, it would require perfection. So there was no empowerment there to do that. But that's going to get into a better covenant now. Okay, verse 2. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and, and gather you again from all nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So this is prophetic now. This is talking about a worldwide regathering. Yes, but so, so, so Deuteronomy chapter 30 actually jumps into the future. It's prophetic because it's speaking about a worldwide regathering of Jews who have been scattered all around the world as a result of their not being able to uphold the terms of the, of the, uh, of the Sinai covenant. Okay? All right. Okay. This is yet to happen. That's right. This is yet to happen. This is not the I'm coming back from Babylon. No. No. This is yet to happen. It's very clear because it's a regathering from all the nations to which they were scattered. And it's a regathering of all. And it's a regathering of all. It's a 100% regathering. Okay. All right. Verse 4. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you from there he will bring you then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers here it comes here comes the better covenant the enablement and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I 
command you today. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Now we get the context to understand what's being said. So I'm going to start reading from verse 7 again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, we know it, we know it was faulted, now we know why, because while it gave the parameters of the covenant, it didn't enable or empower them to fulfill the terms of the covenant. It was an external covenant. It only bound them with external law without the internal enablement to live up to the terms of the covenant. Okay? Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to... Now, let me just stop right there for a moment. Now, you notice there it's talking about Israel and the house of Judah. A lot of times when you read in the prophetic scriptures, you'll see Israel referred to as Ephraim. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Ephraim was the largest of the ten northern tribes. And, this, and the southern tribes as Judah, because Judah was the largest of the southern tribes. Right? But notice here that it's being talked about a worldwide regathering of not only those of the tribe of Israel, but also the tribe of Judah. What's so astounding about that? Doug? But what about the ten northern tribes? They were scattered. Never again regathered in the land. Gone. Under the Assyrian captivity and under the Assyrian deportation. They were gone. And, and that was the Assyrian way of doing things. What they would do is they would transplant populations so that they would intermix and lose their cultural identity. Right? So they, you know, they, you hear, you'll hear them referred to in, you know, in, in some literature as the ten lost tribes, the ten lost tribes of Israel. They may be lost, but God knows them, and he's going to bring them back. He's going to call them out of the world and bring them back into the land, and he's going to bring this covenant upon them. Okay, let me read it again. Because finding fault we, with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Okay, so this is talking about a worldwide regathering from wherever they're scattered all over the world, brought back into the land, and what it's actually talking about there is there will be a, a, a national regeneration. 
right? Actually, let's find that passage. That is in, I believe, Zechariah yeah. chapter 14. Let's look at that for a moment. So, you know what speaks to the regathering is the dry bones prophecy of Ezekiel? You'll notice that that prophecy, that, that comes in stages, right? First the bones are drawn together, right? And then the, then the muscles, you know, so, and it's talking about that regathering. And it's, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of time that's misinterpreted as, well, that's what the resurrection is going to be like. No, that's not what the resurrection, that is talking about a nation that was, has been gone for 2,000 years being brought back to life. And it started it. It started in 1948. Yes. Okay. Zechariah, what's that? Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of men within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of a cup of drunkenness to all surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, who all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Notice there, all nations. Okay. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in, the, in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. <clears throat> In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in a woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. Now you understand who the tents of Judah there are, right? No? You don't understand who the tents of Judah there are? Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Keep your finger there. So tents, tents is, is a metaphor for temporary dwelling, okay? All right, Matthew chapter 24. Is that Hebrew all scripture? When you see it in, in prophetic scripture, it's speaking of temporary dwelling, right? So now Matthew chapter 24 is speaking about our time, but it also moves into the time of the great tribulation. So start reading in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. These are not words that are penned to us. These are words that are penned to Jews who will be living during this time. Yeah, people that in Jerusalem. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, and woe to those who are nursing babes in those days. So this is a message that Jesus is specifically leaving, giving to Jews who will be alive during this time. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, the Antichrist, get out of Dodge quick and flee to the mountains. They go to Petra. The tents of Judah are those who believe and, fl and f understood the remnant, the believing remnant, and they left. So when Jesus returns, that's why it says, as lightning flashes from east to west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Right? So now, so now Jesus moves first to deliver this remnant of Jewish believers who fled the city and have taken up, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of Petra, yeah. but it's really impregnable. Yeah. Even in our time, it's impregnable, yeah. right? So Christ returns there and delivers them, and then he moves east to Jerusalem. So that's why he says he's going to, when he comes back, he's going to defend the tents of Judah first. Okay. Well, yeah. So when, when the well, well, because he's frustrated at Petra, now he turns his attention to Jerusalem. Is that what this is saying? That's what this is saying. Wow. Okay. okay. All right. So now let's pick it up in Zechariah chapter 12 again. Verse 7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Habad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family, uh, so on and so forth. And just drop down to verse 13, uh, chapter 13. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So that is, that is the time of national regeneration. And that's and and that's when they will that's when they will understand finally and fully that they crucified their messiah they crucified their messiah okay so that's the better covenant right that's the that's the better covenant as it applies to the jews okay now let's finish off hebrews chapter 8 
I'm going to start at 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Okay, now turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Okay, so I'll read this to you and you tell me the timeline for this, okay? Sing, O barren, you have not, who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have, who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of married women, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a forsaken woman and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. And with a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your, and here's the quote from Hebrews chapter 8. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for it shall not fear. For the terror, from the terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. So what's the timeline there of that prophecy? Millennial reign. The millennial reign. Okay. Let's finish this off. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right, let's go back to the notes for a bit. Go ahead. That last verse um, speaks of the time between resurrection and the destruction of the temple. Which, which verse? Verse 13. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
Uh, yeah, actually, because this was written just as the siege of Jerusalem started in around 65, 60, somewhere around there, 65 to 67 AD. Jerusalem finally fell after a three-year siege in 70 AD. So, yeah, and, and that kind of makes sense. Wiped out the temple. Yep. Wiped out all the sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and just a just a sidebar. You know, we're all talking about. You know, everybody's excited to see. You know, the 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 third temple. That's not a temple that's sanctioned by God. It's not going to be a good temple. It's not going to be a good temple. So, hey, you know, the red heifer, you know, the third temple. You know, it's like, no, no, no red heifer. Well, it's good in one sense, but we have to go through it. Okay. Okay, so I want to pick it up at verse... Uh, under point C, about the bottom of page two. The question is, why did God not do all this at once and complete the work and national regeneration of Israel with the first coming of Christ? Because there was a mystery that was interwoven throughout all the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. So let's just, we're all familiar with Romans 11, but let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. For this reason, uh, I'll wait for everyone to get there. Okay. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the dispensation of grace, of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So what Paul is saying there, because uh, yeah, there were legitimate questions, well, where does he get all of this information from? Well, don't forget he spent... You know, I think it says in the book of Acts that between the time that he was called and the time that he actually went up to Jerusalem was a period of, I think, three years mm. where he was out in the wilderness. And I think the, you know, the predominant thinking is it was there that he was receiving direct revelation from Christ to empower him for his mission. Okay. Verse 5, which in other ages was, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles, that's you and me, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in, in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things to Christ Jesus. This verse 10 really blows my mind. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, that's you and me, 
to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So why didn't God just do this all at once with, with, uh, with the Jews, the first coming of Christ? Two reasons. One, because God was going to use the Gentile church to accomplish two things. To provoke Jews to jealousy and to demonstrate the wisdom and power of God to the angelic realm. That's pretty amazing. And that's all possible because we have a high priest who is eternal in the heavenlies and part of a priesthood that is not just a priesthood that's representing a specific people group, but it's representing humanity. Okay. All right. So in conclusion, for the Hebrew Christian who was facing a frightening future, God promised them a better hope through a better priesthood. It would not make any sense at all to return to Judaism. For the Gentiles, we no longer are a people with no hope. We have a perfect priesthood. No matter what we face as individuals or as a corporate body, there is never a reason for us to become hopeless. In Christ, we have the greatest hope for a better day. Um, and I, you can read John 16 on your own, on your own. But just in closing, we have a threefold adversary: the flesh, sin resides in the flesh; the world, it's a world of death, and its allurements offer different types of anesthetics to those who are terminal and dying. But it brings a very real and present temptation to those who have been called as citizens of heaven. Distractions and anesthetics to us that have been called to walk the way that is narrow and difficult, the road that leads to life. So we have the flesh, the world, and we have the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren. When we stumble and fall, he goes to work in this role in a variety of ways. He accuses us to God, he accuses us to ourselves, and he causes those who are brethren sometimes to respond in a way that is inconsistent with grace. Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, actually verses 1 to 3, uh, spell that out. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The fact is that we all find ourselves in this place, from time to time at least. But if all should fail and we find ourselves all alone, you can rejoice in the fact that no matter what, God will not reject you. There is hope for a better day, that one day this will all be over and we will sit with Christ in the heavenlies because Jesus is our high priest. And there's a, a quote that kind of speaks to this there from, I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional. The morning of January 6th, he speaks to this very thing. And that's all I have to say about that. Thanks, Corey. 
Any, any questions? Okay, like I said, we'll take next week off, and now we're getting into, we're going to get into what I call the juicy stuff. You know, how the, the heavenly tabernacle and why the heavenly tabernacle had to be sanctified by the blood of Christ. Because it was defiled. <laughs>